The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliate. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Kinesen. This is part two of our academic activism interview with Risa Lieberwitz, professor of labor and employment law in the Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations. You can find part one of our interview on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes by searching for Voices in Vulnerability. What does institutional resilience actually look like? It looks like an institution that does not simply depend on the particular individuals and their personalities who inhabit it. One of my frustrations in the faculty governance work that I do that we call shared governance um, through the AUP, um, that term shared governance is one that's come to mean governance by the different constituents within the university and faculty are a core part of that. There's also governance where students participate as well. So one of the frustrating things that I find in shared governance is that sometimes the pushback against real democratic participative processes is we can trust the provost. We can trust this particular provost, this particular president to act in a particular way. Now, whether that's true or not seems to me to be irrelevant. That if what we want are resilient institutions that carry on for the future generations, these very basic principles of academic freedom, of job security of tenure, of participative governance, all in the service of the public interest, what we need to have are structures in place so that the students and the faculty and the other employees in the institution can come into the institution over the generations knowing that the values and the practices and the policies of that institution are both stable but not rigid. They're stable but resilient to be able to continue to build toward the public welfare. That to me is a resilient institution. But of course, it's in this contested world that we face on an ongoing basis of that kind of public welfare vision of the institution and the pressures through coercion as well as through co-optation, the pressures of something like the neoliberal agenda, which says, no, all institutions should be market actors. Um, All institutions and individuals should see themselves as relying on the market to, uh, to profit in some way economically, as well as Uh, to profit in a way that makes you autonomous or individually self-sustaining. So it's that myth of the market and the individualization of the neoliberal vision of the market and individuals and institutions 
institutions that has created an overwhelming, at this moment, really overwhelming pressure to coerce higher education institutions to move away from that public welfare model. And part of the coercion comes from cutting public funds and saying, you better go find your funding somewhere else. Raising tuition, telling students, figure out what's worth it to you. Is it worth it to you to take out loans? So that that becomes the norm, as opposed to we shouldn't have tuition for anybody. Everybody should have public access. So to maintain the resilience of, of the public welfare vision is, is, is very difficult right now. It's so interesting to hear you talking about all this. And, you know, I'm thinking about how there are other institutions in the United States that have shown to be perhaps, that have shown themselves to be perhaps less resilient than we thought that they were. And then I'm also wondering about how neoliberalism really has taken root, but it's also not that old. And it just seems to me as though if neoliberalism could do so much change in so little time, why can't vulnerability theory as well? Well, I would disagree in a certain way with how old neoliberalism is. Now, if we use the term neoliberalism, it's not that old. It's oftentimes in the 1980s on, right? Late 70s, 1980s on. But it didn't just come out of whole cloth. It was more of a resurgence of what we've seen in the past under capitalism. It's a, a, a resurgence with a great deal of power to assert the market as the only mechanism for evaluating people's worth, for figuring out how to distribute wealth and power, for denying that the state actually subsidizes that wealth and power and it denies that reality through the myth of individual independence, autonomy, and, um, and, and merit, you know, the myth of meritocracy. That's not new. If you go back to, as we were discussing industrialization and the concentration of corporate power and wealth, that was all done because the state enabled it. Now, then you get into a progressive era and there's more in the 1920s uh, regulation that comes in to say, oh, well, this kind of concentration needs to be broken up. So you have push pull constantly, but the power of capitalism as a fundamental driving force in the United States is undeniable. So to continue to try to take hold of that system and to emphasize the democratic potential of social change is what's actually the blip. If you think about it and think about the period of, well, 1930s, it was obviously the Great Depression. People were starving. There was revolutionary talk about alternate, um, alternate societal structures like socialism, like communism. And the government stepped in at that time and created the New Deal, which was necessary for reform, keep people from starving to create at least some sort of social structure. But it's always contingent on whether that vision of social welfare will continue. 
So if you think about the 1930s and the 1940s, the war, post-war effort, um, 1950s, and you get a resurgence again, really anti-communism, an attack on people who are trying to do social welfare. It's a very social welfare work. It's a very repressive period, the 1950s. You know, women being told to go home and you know not to try to have gender equality in the workplace. Um, you know, racism continuing rampant in the United States. It's only when we get into the 1960s that you get this opening up again of a notion of a welfare state, a war on poverty. That's the short period, right? That's the period of, let's say, the 1960s to the late 1970s, where in higher education, you have this, as I said, what's called the massification of higher education, the opening up, the public funding, the possibilities for changing curriculum, which were in many ways very successful through academic freedom of uh, students being expressed as well as faculty who are then coming in as a younger generation into the university out of that. That's the blip. What's extraordinary to me is how successful that was. And so in some ways it's not surprising that there would be this pushback of neoliberalism, which draws on earlier really repressive kinds of um, government policies and institutional actions. But what does that say for the possibilities for vulnerability theory, right? Does that mean, oh, well, forget about it. It was just a blip that we had this opening up in the 60s. I don't think so. You know, I think that as students, just let me stick with, with the campus now, in higher education, as graduate students have unionized, as faculty unionization has grown, particularly in the public university sector, which is a phenomenon uh, that's very important and that you don't see in private universities to a great extent because the law has really created huge barriers to unionization for faculty. But as we see this kind of democratic force that's coming through graduate student unionization, through uh, faculty unionization, through uh, demands that come in that way for the public welfare, again, I think it's through organizing that we see change. And, and we've seen it, you know, and we don't have Donald Trump in office anymore. That's a very positive change. And it came through, I think, by a notion of a popular front vision of people coming together to say, no, this is not acceptable. And I think out of that can come a reevaluation of what the state should do, including in higher education. So do you think that this particular moment in time is a good one full of potential? I am cautiously optimistic, <laughs> as they say in politics. I have to be optimistic. I think the forces are great. And I, and I do sometimes despair um, because in higher education, there's been such damage, such deep damage done by this neoliberal agenda. We now have in the United States about 70% of faculty are in non-tenure track contingent positions. It used to be just the reverse of that if you go back like to the late 1960s and early 1970s. So we've gone from 70% or so of the faculty being in tenure track or tenured positions to now 70% being in non-tenure track 
contingent positions, some of which are more precarious than others, but they're all still in non-tenure track positions rejecting the notion of the lifetime job security. Now, tenure has its problems, but not because of the job security. It has its problems because it should be more widespread. And that when you're in the pre-tenure position on a tenure track level, your academic freedom should be better protected. But to move from a tenure system to a precarious job position undermines and breaks that link between academic freedom and security, job security. I'm not, I'm not engaged in some sort of nostalgia for a time that never was. It's always been a flawed system on campus. It's always been elitism. There's always been problems of you know, faculty who don't want somebody entering their turf, you know, and, and perhaps um, you know, engaging in, in repressive actions against their junior colleagues. That's all very real. But the way to address that is to expand academic rights and academic freedom, not to undermine academic freedom through precarious jobs. So that's what worries me the most in terms of trying to recapture what was the most positive about building higher education in the public interest. That's the hard, that's the part that I worry about the most. Can things change in a positive way? Yes. But I do think that the, the damage to the fundamental structure of a university that really has that resilience that I was talking about to continue to build and serve the public interest, the damage through the public funding cuts through uh, the decimation of the tenure system nationally, through uh, high tuition for students and driving students to take a huge debt that is a, a, a yoke around their neck for the rest of their lives, which then forces them into envisioning their path into one where I've, got to, I've just got to serve my debt for decades so I won't do social justice work. I think that is a really discouraging, to say the, the least, a destructive combination of forces that will say, if we really want to recapture a university that will serve the public interest, people will have to give up perhaps the commercial success they have as scientists who are engaged in spin-off corporations or who get royalties, but to go back to first principles of why we have education. So do you think that the change in the percentage of those who have tenure is more related to market forces and institutional resilience? Or do you think it might have more to do with the resilience of organizations like the AAAP and perhaps other places that professors have used to organize? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And is it, is it even possible to separate those things? Yeah, I think they're all related. So the AAUP, was, as I said, really the founding of the AAUP was an expression collectively by faculty members, by professors saying that if we are to have individual academic freedom, we must have the collective commitment to the public interest of the university and to the importance of academic freedom. 
and that that collective commitment must translate into institutional values and norms. The government, I think, should also come in and legislate in ways that protect those workplace rights. These are labor rights, and I'd like to see them expanded beyond professors to employees generally. And we usually count on unionization to bring those democratic rights to the workplace. So all of these kinds of forces, whether it's the AAUP's creation as um, initially as a professional organization that over time also includes collective bargaining and shared governance, the kinds of things that I was describing before, that the resilience of these organizations is essential to maintain that kind of collective commitment and collective action that then from the bottom up in their institutions of higher education set the foundation to say the institution must respect academic freedom and tenure because the people who are central to the institutions are demanding it. We're labor and we're demanding these rights. So those two go together. Now, how is it then that tenure went away when you've got so many people who have an interest in it and who can collectively demand it? I ask myself that a lot. And so I think the power of privatization, I'd mentioned earlier, the co-optation as well as coercion. I think those two forces in the 1980s on were really important to change that labor model. Because what we now have is a very stratified faculty workforce where you have more and more an elite layer of faculty members who still are on tenure track and tenured and the mass of faculty who are now more and more in these more precarious positions. That divides the faculty from itself and through what I'm calling now co-optation, that kind of elite layer benefits from the stratification in various ways. It has the best working conditions. The people who are in non-tenure track faculty are doing probably most of the teaching. And that sort of individualized self-interest that's part of privatization and corporatization and the neoliberal agenda has a, a, a great deal of appeal in a short-term vision. And I think that faculty who have lost the sense of the public mission of the university being dependent on serving only that interest have perhaps unintentionally contributed to the demise of tenure and the destruction of the first principles of what the higher education institution should work for so that the resilience of the institution depends on those who embody the institution. And it also depends on a government that distributes resources and rights through the law and subsidies to help to maintain the institution in a way of uh, the higher education institutions in a way that does serve the public interest. So it's really all interrelated. 
It sounds like it would be really difficult to continue organizing as professors when you're set up to kind of have an interest against each other. Well, that's true in any labor organizing. If you think about the history of the United States, and again, this is not unique to the United States. You can see it in any capitalist country. But if you think about so the moment in the United States, the way in which race has been used to divide the working class from each other, the way that gender has been used to divide the working class, the way that immigration status or citizenship status has been used to divide the working class so that instead of working class interests, labor interests being ones where you've got the numbers, <laughs> the labor um, Labor has the numbers. If they have solidarity, then they can make collective demands. But it means seeing our common interests as opposed to believing what's what's coming in from conservative or reactionary governments that's coming in from employers to say, no, the problem is those workers in other countries were stealing your jobs. The problem is that um, that there is this sort of liberal agenda around critical race theory, around uh, gender equality, that's taking away uh, working class entitlement by white men in particular to certain a certain existence. So that when you create scapegoats and the other to blame, the common labor interests become, they become destroyed, they become stratified. And that's where the labor movement is so important. So this is all about social movements. This is all about building alliances between the labor movement, uh, immigration rights movements, uh, women's rights movement, the vulnerability theory, It's all about these kinds of alliances being brought so that we see our common interests rather than creating divisions and reinforcing divisions that only undermine our common interests in the public welfare. It's the same exact thing for professors and faculty members. It's the same exact thing for graduate students who are organizing. How do we see our common interests? How do we build alliances? So that in my view, what we do is we build together towards that public welfare vision, that public mission vision, and what needs to be in place to to rebuild it, academic freedom, job security, low tuition, no tuition, public funding. And I think that if we can continue to build in that way, and I do think that there are elements of doing that through student activism, through faculty activism, through alliances with other employees in the university, but if we can do that, I think it also fights against a vision that's being foisted on people, particularly from the Trump administration, that, oh, these institutions of higher education, these universities, they're just elitists, ivory towers. They don't care about real people's lives. If we build institutions that are actually serving the public interest and are resilient in that way, we can say, no, these are, we're your institutions. These universities are, they belong to the public. That's why you have low tuition. That's why we expand access to your children, whether you went to school or not, because these are your institutions. 
That's my hope. I think it's possible. I just think it's going to be really hard. Yeah, I think it's definitely possible because what, what you're telling me, what I'm hearing really, is that the United States has a history of our population continuously choosing principles and common ground over individual good. Because like you're saying, that's how all of these movements have existed and been successful in, in the various ways that they have been. Mm-hmm. That is very hopeful. It is hopeful. There's, um, <clears throat> it's, it's to use Richard Edwards' famous title of his book, It's Contested Terrain. It's a beautiful book. I go back to it all the time. And he wrote it, I don't have the copyright in mind, the year of the copyright, I think it was the early 70s. Richard Edwards, very, very well-known economist who wrote this book, Contested Terrain, where it was very influential to me in seeing the simultaneous forces that are in contradiction, that are contesting the terrain of the workplace. And to see that that is an ongoing struggle, it's not new. It's an ongoing struggle. And so seeing it in that broader historical way means that one one is not shocked when the contest moves in one direction, which is more discouraging, but it also says that that always carries with it the potential for subverting the move towards repression. Because people, I think, ultimately understand their circumstances and they understand a lack of fairness and justice. And that if we can get good organizing going on and people talk to each other and they start to see where their common interests are, then that leads to that bottom up demand for government policies and institutional policies policies that serve the greatest number, the masses of people that serve everyone and that do it through transparent governance rather than through myths foisted on us that this is about the invisible hand of the market. What would you like listeners to remember from our conversation today? Well, in the famous words of Joe Hill, the famous organizer um, who was actually executed in Utah in 1915, because of his radical activities, he said, don't waste time in mourning, organize. When he was saying that about people who were dreading the execution, of course, he said, don't waste time in mourning, organize. This is really about organizing. I began talking about in terms of vulnerability theory as relational. We live in a society because we relate to each other as human beings with, as as Martha Feynman has eloquently explained in in her work and analyzed in her work, that we live together because we need each other and that we all have the vulnerabilities of being human. We are all at certain moments more or less in need in different ways, whether it's because of age, because of illness, because of disability, because of Um, building families because of wanting to go to school rather than work. We all have needs. And as she points out, institutions themselves are vulnerable over time. So that if we think about these relational concepts 
and think in terms of the goals of a society that could put public welfare as a priority, then we build our institutions to try to move in that way. But the only way to build them to move in that direction is to organize and to have good organizational uh, organizations and strong alliances with organizations that have common interests to make the demands on government and our institutions to act in certain ways and to bring democracy into them. But that's not a one-time victory. It has to be done continually to make sure that the resilience that we're aiming for, for the public welfare is tended by those who embody those institutions, whether it's government as an institution or higher education or other kinds of workplaces. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.